0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from The District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info@thedistrictchurch. Amen. Good morning, everyone. How are we? All right. Good. Um, AC is out, but it's actually not too bad in here. Uh, just in case it... W- Were to get worse, uh, there are fans underneath your seats that you can use. Uh, Take those with you as you go. That's just our lovely, gracious gift for you today um, for being with us. We're going to be in Colossians 1, continuing on in our series in Colossians. Um, So far up to this point, really what we've seen is just an introduction. Uh, There was a greeting, and then from there he moved on to a time of thanksgiving, for the church in Colossae, and then the Apostle Paul moved on last week to just a time of petition and prayer, where he was asking of the Lord for the Colossians to really just continue in the good faith, the good work that they were accomplishing in their city, that ultimately Christ, as we'll see today, was accomplishing through them. And so we're just going to continue walking verse by verse, and honestly, guys, like today, there's a lot uh, to cover, and so I'm going to just dive straight into it Um, And as we dive straight into it, we're just going to be asking for the Lord to just bless our time and for the Spirit to just continue guiding us in His truth for for our good and for His glory. So let's pray together. Father, we thank You uh, for Your Word. We thank You that it is um, given to us and that we have been able to read it and study, meditate on it, and ultimately have it transform our lives uh, to know You more, to treasure You above all things. And to, to literally have our affections and our desires um, change and transform from our old selves to our new self. And we'll see that today as we open up your word and we see the activity that you've been doing to create a new people from an old. And to not only do that, but do that because of the authority that you possess in Jesus Christ. So we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. We thank you for this opportunity this morning to the gospel together, to pray the gospel together, to preach the gospel together, as we'll be doing right now to receive the gospel together for our maturity, for our growth, so that like the Colossians, we will continue to increase in wisdom and understanding that is from the Spirit. So Father, we ask for that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Colossians 1, we're going to be covering verses 13 through 23 Today, 13 through 23. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through those verses, and then I'm going to kind of break the sections up um, as kind of like a sandwich, um, if you will. And and so we're going to have, we're just going to enjoy a Jesus sandwich uh, today, and it's going to be good for for our souls. So beginning in verse 13, I want to start there. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So a lot to cover. Um, and, And with this, what I want to do is I actually want to take verses 13 and 14, And then I want to take verses 21 through 23 and kind of cover those together as as essentially the bread for the sandwich here. And then Jesus being 15 through 20 is going to really be the meat that we're going to just kind of feast on this morning. But but covering the bread, the sandwich here, um, is, is really talking about the inheritance of the saints in light that was referred to back in verse 12 of our message last week. That we will receive this inheritance because of all that Christ is purchasing for us, all that he is doing for us. And so what is this inheritance that we ultimately receive? This inheritance that we receive, and again, in receiving this that you'll see throughout this passage, we are receiving it as the passive um, agents within this transaction. We are not the active agents in which we are doing anything. We are merely the passive agents in which we are receiving the activity that God is ultimately covering here. And so looking at this inheritance, what we're receiving as saints in the light it is the fact that He is delivering us from the domain of darkness. It's the fact that He's transferring us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. It's the fact that in Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. It's also the fact that once we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled, He has made right us by His body of flesh, His death, in order to then present us holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. And when you think about that idea of holy and blameless, it's really going back to the fact that we are saints in light, that we are saints referred to in the first opening Thanksgiving and
1: petition for prayer. Saints, does anybody remember what just the term for saints meant? All right, there's not a quiz on it, but it's just holy ones. Saints just mean holy ones. And we even kind of looked at there for
0: a while, like, How in the world can we consider ourselves holy ones when we know ourselves more than anyone else? Like we know the faults that we have, we know the sins that we still commit, we know, like when we look at Jesus, we see our uh, failures on a daily basis. How in the world could he refer to us as saints, which literally is just translated holy ones? Well, it's because he is the one that is presenting us holy and blameless. And we're going to see how today he presents us holy and blameless, how he is the active agent making us holy rather than us cleaning ourselves up. And then he goes on, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That actually, uh, for a lot of people, they kind of stumble over that verse a little bit because it sounds like you've got this active and passive kind of agency here. You have God doing all this work. You have us receiving this work. How then can he get into this idea of us if we continue in the faith, if we are stable and steadfast, if we are not shifting from the hope of the gospel? So how do we reconcile this idea of whether or not we are continuing in something that God is supposed to be the one doing all the work for? And for us, it actually brings to mind verses like Philippians 1.6, which says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We know that throughout walking throughout the scriptures, there is a relationship between God doing the agent and active work of salvation within us while also granting to us the strength and faith needed for us to also then hold on to, as Scripture often says, hold on to this faith. Hold on to this Savior. Hold on to, or as other uh, theologians will say, persevere to the end. Because one of the things that's, that's this concept really is just echoing the beginning of this, this chapter. If you remember what I said in his prayer, his prayer was simply that they would continue doing the work they had already done that they would continue trusting in what they already trust in. And so it's kind of this already-not-yet mentality that, yes, you already possess the faith that you need for salvation, but yet you are to also continue on in that faith, trusting in the one in which you already trust in. And so it's not that, it's not that God does all the work for us, and then once we, we become believers, then it's up to us to keep it or it's up to us to ultimately um, kind of muster up the works needed for that salvation because there's kind of those two ideas that is it a works-based salvation that we do all necessary abiding by the law abiding by old testament abiding by the ten commandments Um, more than the ten commandments you've heard me say there's 613 commandments throughout the old testament if we were to do all of those things does not mean then that you have earned God's favor to then save you. That would be a works-based religion, a works-based salvation. If it were a works-based salvation, if you were to actually achieve it, then it's also up to you on the back end to keep it. And at that point, you never know if you're in. Because every single moment that you sin or every single moment that you stumble... I mean like if you're if you just like lied to someone and you jump in a car and someone hits you head on and kills you and you didn't have the opportunity to confess where do you go? So this mentality or this understanding that that for us to stay in or to continue in the faith has anything to do with our salvation is is wrong. What it rather is revealing for us is that those who have been granted genuine, true faith, that is saving faith to see Jesus for who He is, to believe in Him for who He is, to have a union with Him by the gospel, that actually allows us, as Galatians 2.20, again, one of my favorite verses, as Galatians 2.20 says, I am now crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So if, if I am now dead to myself, and the life I'm now living is the Son of God living within me, guess who gets to hold to the faith that's been provided? Jesus. So the same Jesus that saves me is the same Jesus that holds me. And we'll see that here in a minute. And that's why he's using this phrase or this phrasing for those who continue in Jesus because Jesus is already in you. For those who continue trusting because he's provided what you need to trust him. You are stable and steadfast. You will not shift from the hope of the gospel within you because you understand the hope of the gospel within you because you have Christ in you who is the object of the gospel. So it's not a matter there of, man, I now have some anxiety because whether or not I'm going to continue in the faith, I don't know. If Christ is in you, you don't have to worry about it. You will persevere to the end. You will trust him no matter what the circumstances are. Now, this idea, this kind of sandwich of rescuing and redeeming activity of God is both an old and new activity within the Bible. There are even some beautiful parallels uh, between them. Take Exodus 6, 6-8, when God says, Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession and inheritance. I am the Lord. So we see this parallel, that this, this redeeming, rescuing activity of God is, is, is his MO from the very beginning. He's been doing this with the Israelites. He's been doing this with individual characters throughout the scriptures. He's been doing this now with the church of Jesus Christ. This is what he does is he rescues and he redeems, and he brings out of bondage and into freedom. And as he says here, it's a possession that we take hold of. Just as Colossians is saying here, it's an inheritance that we receive. God's God is transferring us from this domain or this dominion of darkness. Whereas he says in verse 23, we are hostile in mind. We are doing evil deeds. So what exactly is God transferring us from? What is he saving us from? What is he redeeming us from? Because some of us have maybe heard a gospel that is preaching to you that God is saving you from the evil outside. From the evil outside. Sometimes people, people kind of picture the scene like, like a superhero movie where you're kind of stuck in a, in a dark alley and, and, and some villain or evil person's coming into that alley and they're, they're trying to harm you, hurt you, destroy you, seek, kill, and destroy whatever it looks like, kind of the devil in the alley. And then you have Jesus, the superhero, who swoops in to rescue and redeem you out of that alley. That's how a lot of us, and then maybe take you to a secret layer where it's just perfect. Like That's how we kind of view the story of Christianity, is that that is what God is doing. He's rescuing
1: those who are good from those who are evil and bringing them home with Him. And unfortunately, that's just not the complete gospel.
0: I remember when I first started attending church, um, it was right after 9-11 happened. So 2001, I was a freshman in high school. We were driving down the road. 9-11 was, was about two weeks earlier. And as we're driving down the road, my dad just makes this statement. He's like, man, this, this world is going to hell in a handbasket. And we need to start going to church. And he just pointed at a church and just said, we're going there. And that's where we started going. And that's the church that I later came on staff at and served for seven years. And a wonderful church by God's grace. I remember thinking, like in that moment, yeah, as a 14-year-old, as a man, this, this world is going to hell in a handbasket. you got these bad guys doing these things. you got the good guys who, who are kind of like having the bad things happen to them. And so when I went to church, I was like, yeah, let's, let's start going to church. I want to be on the right side. I want to be on the right team. I want to make sure that we're covered there and that no one sees us as being bad. That was kind of my mentality at that time. I just didn't realize that I, too, was one of those that was on the way to hell in a handbasket. As the Puritan preacher and author Thomas Watson once said, until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Listen to these words from Psalm 32 of what it means for sin to become bitter and for you to own, really, the evil that you are. And the fact that his redeeming work is not just for those outside, but it's for you. Psalm 32, 1-7 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Up to this point, you could just kind of hear those two verses and be like, yeah, blessed is that sinner who came to become a saint. Kind of think about who those people are in your life. It might be your boss, it might be your neighbor, Might be someone within your family at a reunion. You can think about those people that you're like, man, I just wish they would come to know Christ because they're so awful. But then he says this in verse 3 of Psalm 32, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer." You can start to kind of see this, this picture here. When, when you're silent about your reality, it begins to destroy you from the inside out. It begins to waste away, and you begin groaning day and night. Why is this so wrong? Why is this life that I'm feeling just like in such turmoil within me? It's because we're believing the lie that we're, there's something good in us, that we're better than we actually think we are. And it's until the heavy hand of the Lord comes upon me, conviction, that we start to have that strength as if we're good begin to dry up. And he says in verse 5, I then acknowledged my sin to you, confessed, and I did not cover my iniquity. I didn't hold anything back. I just let it all out. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then listen to this language. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Like us merely confessing our sins, God doing the saving work over us, then hides us, preserves us in trouble, and then shouts over us songs of deliverance. You're literally seeing all of Colossians wrapped up in this Psalm of David when he is just confessing himself and then displaying the glory of God's saving work. It's exactly what he's doing. And again, he's giving all the credit to the Lord. Literally, the only credit he has to himself is the confession Finally, I see myself for who I really am. And I'm confessing that sin, and it then brings me into your family. Because when it comes to sin, we're both perpetrator and victim. We don't have any choice but to sin. We're active agents and passive agents within the domain of darkness. And that's why the Bible can use this kind of dual language for rescuing us. We're both being rescued from the sin that happens to us. How often do you see in the Bible sin being referred to as an enslavement or a bondage? That those shackles need to be broken down so that you can be freed from it? So there is this kind of passive, you're born into sin, and you are shackled to it, you're imprisoned to it. But at the same time, there is also the sin of perpetrator. There is the sin in which we commit that has put Jesus on the cross, that we are held accountable for. So it's not only that we're just born into it and held by it, but also that our nature within our sin is to live it out and live it lavishly. And so we see this kind of language of God rescuing and redeeming both those who are enslaved to sin as well as those who are loving the fact that they are lavishing in sin. And that they are running headlong into it. Think held captive by sin, needing to be rescued. And also think Paul on the road to Damascus being rescued from his desire to go and persecute Christians. God reached out and redeemed and rescued him from himself. Now one of the big questions I had when I became a Christian was the same question that some Pharisees had for Jesus. Because again, I was not brought up in the church So I didn't have a lot of understanding or weight on Jesus and who he was in his existence. I knew just being from the South that he's a good man, that he's a great preacher, that he created a religion, and a lot of people follow him on Easter and Christmas. But outside of that, I really didn't know much about Him. So when when someone preached this to me, and I heard this message, and it started kind of warring within me, this bitterness, I was like, why then is Christ the one who is sweet? Why Him? Just like the Pharisees say in Luke 5, 20-24, when Jesus saw the faith of a person, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus exercising his authority over the physical was for him trying to illustrate to the Pharisees that I have authority over
1: the spiritual as well. But we struggle with this. Why does Jesus, the Son of Man, have this authority?
0: Why not Abraham, the father of God's people, Why not Isaac or Jacob, who fathered the twelve tribes of Israel? Why not Moses, who physically transferred God's people from slavery to freedom? Why not David, who became Israel's king? Why not Solomon, with all of his wisdom and splendor and wealth? Why not Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of the prophets? Every single one of these men were operating on borrowed authority. They were merely viceroys. They were agents. They were not acting as Jesus Christ who is Lord. They were acting on behalf of Jesus Christ because He is Lord. Because of who He is. This Jesus is not just some good man 2,000 years ago. And I believe part of our issue with Jesus today is that we spend too much, too much time trying to divide what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is simply just the fact that Jesus Christ is 100% man and 100% God. At all times. 100% man and 100% God. It's not 50-50. The minute we start hiding Jesus' Godness behind His humanity,
1: we strip Him of His very nature and identity. But I think our culture has dumbed down and numbed the deity of Christ. And I think it's happened because of cultural
0: movements that, again, they might have had the best of intentions. But let's take the bracelets back when you were in maybe middle school or high school. What would Jesus do? Maybe I'm dating myself a little bit there. You were probably like elementary or preschool but there was this big kick, just yeah, what would Jesus do? As if he's just some like guru to grab a couple of advice from and then let me apply that to my current circ- circumstance or situation. Would Jesus punch this person?
1: Well, if you don't know a lot about Jesus, you might think yes. And then you have kind of the Hollywood um, uh,
0: overtake of Jesus with the t-shirts and the hats, Jesus is my homeboy. I mean, you had everyone from Madonna, Ashton Kutcher, Bruce Willis. You got a lot of them repping that shirt on, a, on a, just a weekly basis. Jesus is my homeboy. I'm team Jesus. He says, let's go to eternity where there's full wealth and splendor. Hey, that fits my Hollywood lifestyle. I'm going to go with that rather than the alternative.
1: Absolutely, Jesus is my homeboy. We've numbed Jesus of His authority. We've robbed him and stripped him of it by not seeing him more than a man.
0: And that, I believe, is why Paul spends so much time in Colossians reminding these Christians who they are following. This Jesus of Nazareth has a
1: bit more credentials than just being the son of a carpenter. So let's look at this beat here. Verse 15.
0: He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, that's an interesting statement, right? Firstborn of all creation. When you first look at that, you're thinking, hold up, Jesus was created? I mean, if you're just reading it point blank, that's, that's what it looks like, right? That's why like, different religions, like Jehovah's Witness, will grab that verse and say, Jesus is not eternal. He is a created being.
1: Therefore, He does not possess the same authority as Yahweh or Jehovah. 71%, and you've heard us say this if you've been in our membership class, 71%
0: of church-attending, Bible-believing Christians believe Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 71%. like That was a research done amongst 400 evangelical churches across the nation. And 71% of their congregants came
1: back and said, yeah, Jesus was created. However, you have to really look
0: into the original language of this to be able to see what he's getting at here. The same word for firstborn is also used of David in Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verse 27, And I will make him the firstborn, comma, the highest of the kings of the earth. The firstborn is not an origin as it is a title. It's a title. And as we know about David, as many people think is Jesus in the original Old Testament Storylines. Jesus is the fulfillment of David. Like when you're thinking David and Goliath and you're thinking that story, like you're not David in the story. You're not grab your five stones and just start slinging them at whatever the sin is in your life to try to destroy it. Like that's not you in the story. You're the trembling Israelites over in the corner who aren't willing to fight their fight and their sin. Therefore, you need a superhero to come into the story in order to defeat the sin that's in your life, that's standing in front of you, that's keeping you from your promised land. And so for this, that is Jesus. And David, being a picture of Jesus, is given this title, firstborn, which Christ then ultimately fulfills. He is the highest of the highest of the kings who rule. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. Now I've always loved this, because if He is the highest of the highest of of all things that are within creation, it then now lands into the four. For means whatever was just said has direct implications to what he's about to say next. For, because he is the highest of the high, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, through him and for him. How can a created being create? But rather, all of creation was done through him and the essence that he exists. Not only was it created through him, but he is also before all things. How can you be before all things, if you were created within a time. He exists as eternal before all of it. And not only does He create all things and is before all things preeminent, but in Him all things continue. They hold together. This is why water continues to be water. This is why your blonde hair continues to be blonde hair. This is why your black hair continues to be black hair until it becomes gray. But even at that point, it's still being held together by Jesus. Everything exists because of Him and holds together because of Him. Nothing slips through the fingers of Jesus. Now there's something interesting here in the phrasing. Verses 15 through 17 are dealing with all creation. Or some theologians will refer to old creation. Because in Scripture you're about to see when it comes to the church, it is referred to as the new creation. The new people. 15 through 17 is dealing with all creation. Verses 18 through 20 deal with this new creation, the church. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn, there's that title again, from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Of all creation, 15 through 17, Christ is the highest of it. Or, as the NIV translates, over it. Literally, creating all things or old creation from above. He's over it. And of the new church, the new creation, 18 through 20, Christ is the beginning. He is the creator of the church as the firstborn. Again, highest ranking authority. But from this time, it's not from above. It's from the dead. It's from below. Literally creating the new creation, not from above, but from below, from the dead, so that whether Christ is above all things or whether Christ is below all things, He is before all things. He is preeminent. He is all authority. All authority. If it's old creation, or by that I mean all of creation, He created it from His life. Speaking of the new creation, the church, he creates it from his death. And that's why we see in verse 22, he says, he is now reconciled,
1: created new from old by his death. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So if that wasn't enough, to say that in the first creation,
0: he's above all of it, holds all authority, creates all of it. It's all done through him. It's all done for him. It's all done by him. And not only that, but he holds it together. Then in the new creation, the church, he's then not just creating it from his life, but he's also creating it from his death. That even while he was dead, through that process, is creating a new people. To where then he has all authority possessed in life and death, To create. And if that's not enough, he then adds this in verse 19, For in Him, this Jesus, all the fullness of God, everything the Father possesses, everything the Spirit possesses, everything the Son of Man possesses, together in the Trinity, God, the fullness of God,
1: was pleased to dwell bodily in Jesus Christ. There is Nothing He can't do. Nothing. Therefore, as verse 20 says, through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. He created it. then fractured it. He possesses all authority to make it what He wants.
0: To come in and through His life, His death, and His resurrection make all things new. Whether on earth or in heaven, just so that we're covering the grounds on on kind of the, the, the creative order here, whether on earth or in heaven, he's making peace. What is sin doing? Sin's trying to destroy. Sin's trying to disrupt. Sin's trying to create chaos and anarchy. He's coming in to make peace. He's
1: making it by the blood of his cross. My question for you is What's the worst thing sin can do to you? What's the worst thing sin can do to you? Because some of us think the worst thing sin can do to me is ruin my reputation,
0: sin can ruin my marriage. Sin can ruin my children and their upbringing, and they might go a, a, a wrong course of action. Sin can ruin my finances. Like, we think about sin compartmentalized into the different areas of our life as though sin is just going to kind of stain it.
1: But really, let me ask you the question. Like what is the worst thing sin can do to you? I'll, I'll take an answer. What's the worst thing sin can do to you? Make you what? Make you deny it? Okay? Keep you from intimacy with God? All right? What else? Feel you ashamed? Can each of these things still be shifted? What's one thing that sin can do that can't be undone if it's in your own strength? Keep us from God, which if He's breathing out life, it'll kill you. The worst thing sin can do to you kill you. Kill you. Here's what Jesus did with His authority. Jesus dying on the cross Strips sin and exhausts it of its power. That's what he did. As Eugene Peterson says, all evil is to be destroyed through the cosmic outworking of the crucifixion. If the worst thing sin can do to you is yes, it can do all those things that we mentioned. Those lead ultimately to our death. That's the last laugh that sin gets, is you dying. And that was the last laugh sin thought it had when Jesus died on the cross. But because verses 15 through 20 hold true, that he is preeminent, before all things, both eternal, in the creative order, in the fullness of the Godhead,
0: because Jesus possesses all authority, even Him bearing our sin, and sin taking Jesus to the worst place possible, which is killing Him. In that moment, Jesus still holding authority to defeat death and stripping sin of its power so that now as he's reconciling us to himself he's able to come to every single one of us who are sinners
1: with sin running rampant to kill us he's able to come to us and say you know what sin's power to destroy you to rob you to kill you? I'm more powerful than it. Because I'm more powerful than it. I can come into your life. I can
0: take that death penalty that you deserve because of your sin. I can take it and remove it. And in removing it, I can then grant you grace by giving you my righteousness so that you are reconciled. To be in relationship with the Father,
1: Spirit, and the Son for all eternity. Because death has no power anymore. This is the Christ that we serve. And this is the one that, like, when
0: I just think about the sins that we commit on a daily basis, our issue The reason why we war with them, whether it's lust, whether it's greed, whether it's envy, whether it's wanting what they have that you don't have, whether it's just this constant, like, I can't stop talking about this person because I just find it fun to talk about this person. Like, whatever it is, when we war with it from behavioral modification, which is just, let me counter that with something else, all we're doing is kind of going back into this works based mindset. If instead of looking at uh, pornography, I'm going to go and, um, and, and just remove it with like covenant eyes on my computer or whatever it might look like to try to keep myself from it, I'm actually not getting to the root of the issue. The root of the issue is that there is sin indwelling within me that loves to look at pornography and therefore I'm going to act upon it and just trying to remove the boundary of it doesn't ever actually solve the issue. And therefore that's why like 97% of men and 80% of women are still warring with pornography on a daily basis because they're trying to modify the behavior of it. Rather than getting to the root
1: issue, the sin that dwells, loves it, and wants to kill me.
0: And instead of going to Christ, who possesses the power to destroy it, we want Him to just simply make us a little bit better.
1: Can you just make me look at it less? I'll feel better. But what we're actually saying there is, I still love it. Let me have a little bit of it. If Jesus truly possesses the authority, we have to start there
0: before we will ever begin to actually have true behavioral modification. A truly renewed mind and a transformed
1: heart we serve Jesus who the demons shudder
0: at when they hear His name be spoken. We serve Jesus, who a sick person comes to him, who's paralyzed, and He just touches them and they're healed.
1: We serve Jesus, who is truly, as our subtitle says, is preeminent. He is supreme. He's over all. He is before all. He has created everything and He holds it together. we got to start seeing Jesus for who He truly is rather than just the leader of this movement that we throw ourselves into. Because Christianity is not a cause It's not a cause. We've got to stop treating it as a cause. We've
0: got to stop treating it as just this kind of add-on to our lives that kind of makes us check off some boxes that we feel better about ourselves.
1: That's not what it is. It is a cosmic, a cosmic transaction of sinners becoming
0: saints, of old creation becoming new creation. Of eternal implications. This isn't just some fad that we jump onto um, as it's kind of riding its 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 uh, movement or um, kind of like a stock market where like Christianity goes way up when there's persecution high and then Christianity goes way down when circumstances are easy and comfortable. Like we're not riding Christianity. What we're doing is proclaiming something that has eternal ramifications. That if Christ does not transfer you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son, guess where you remain for eternity?
1: Darkness. And that darkness is going to look a little different post-judgment day. Jesus to be seen for who He is. what I want. I want Jesus to be seen for who He is.
0: You hear us use language, make much of Jesus. Or to have His name extolled. To glorify His name, to worship Him, to praise Him. But all of those things are going to fall flat if we don't have any objective evidence for who He is. You will not worship Jesus if you don't see Jesus.
1: You will not make much of His name if you don't know who He is. If you just see Him as a good teacher, well then yeah, give Him a Teacher of the Year award back in 30 AD. Good job, Jesus. He's more than that. He's not just good man either.
0: Even Him. He says... Who's good but God? Don't call me good man. What he's saying
1: there is I'm more than a good man. I'm God. God's good. We're free from sin and death because Jesus Christ is preeminent. Because he's above all things. Because he's below all things. Because he's before all things. How might our lives look different if, as it says here, we were to continue faith? Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed. So there's something to the gospel being proclaimed.
0: that allows us to see what we are not only apart from Christ but also what we are in Christ. Here's the thing like it just there's a different level of and it's humble but it's confidence that Christians possess the more you see Jesus for who he is and to know that as Galatians 2:20 that 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 Jesus is living out my life for me. That means when I see a temptation, I'm able to look at that temptation and say, you want to kill me? Not today. Because Jesus has authority over you. And also, not only that, but as He has authority over whatever that is, whatever that thing is, the more we see Jesus and treasure Jesus, that sin looks less appealing.
1: Our appetites change where we long for and treasure more of the
0: food that is coming from Jesus than what we are feasting on in this world
1: and what it has to offer. I get it. I know it takes time. I know it takes time. That's why some of the best things to
0: do, and we're sparse with that in the district church, I understand this, but one of the best things to do is get around saints that I like to say are seasoned and they're seasoned with the salt of Christ. And they sit back and they've got 40, 50 years of seeing Jesus and treasuring Jesus, meditating on Christ and letting him live his life throughout their lives for them to be able to say Here's the battles that were conquered while I was trembling in the corner. This is what Jesus did to accomplish this sin in my life. This is what He did to accomplish the situation in my life, the circumstance in my life. Jesus possessed
1: all the authority to do that. I never worried. Just, he just did Him. He just was Jesus. How might our lives look different? We hold on to that. And we dive into it. We
0: pursue it. I want to see more of how Jesus' activity is
1: living itself out within my life. And if you want to know how, we'll get to that in the coming weeks. Pray together. Father, we thank you so much. Father, we thank you for your Son Jesus this morning. There is no one greater. There is no one greater than Jesus Christ. I pray that I pray that, that just renews our mind and our hearts. that we find refreshing just wells of wisdom and spiritual understanding that just flow through our souls because of Jesus living in us. The one who holds the highest of the ranks of kings, of authority,
0: ruling over all dominions over all rulers over all authorities
1: and not only that but he who holds the authority of everything below even death bound up in his authority to be able to conquer it to rise from it jesus rules God, remind us that He rules in our hearts. That it's His good word over ours every single day. It's His good news over our news. It's His good glory over ours. For us. Peace for us. Nothing can be against us. for your life, Jesus, for your death. Thank you, Jesus, for your resurrection. That it's through that you've created this new people to be the kingdom of God. We worship you, we honor you, we praise you. If we don't have the words to praise you, if we don't have the
0: Motions to praise you if we don't have the intellect to praise you. Give it to
1: us. Grant us that as you prayed, the Apostle Paul prayed for this church in Colossians. Make us increase in your good, glorious name we pray. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit
0: www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to
1: you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? At